0: It's like what's in front of me is a bit of nebulous mist, but I know what's behind that nebulous mist is amazing. A lot of people would say my Oprah show years would be my glory days, but no. There's something that feels the most like home ever.
1: Welcome to the Ideas of Order podcast, a show designed by California Closets, dedicated to answering the question, what does home mean to you? In this series, we will be discussing the homes, spaces, and communities that help shape our guests past, present, and how they hope it will shape their future. I'm Jeremiah Brent, and with the help of some of my closest friends, we are so ready to open our doors to you. The journey of self-discovery and personal actualization is never a straightforward one. Regardless of the many plans we try to create, the paths we end up taking are often surprising. There isn't a true way to predict where you'll end up or who you'll become in the process. Throughout this unpredictable journey, how do you continue to celebrate the person that you are and the person that you're becoming? How do you stay rooted in the present yet flexible enough to embrace the future? On today's episode of Ideas of Order, I'm joined by someone whose reputation for empowering lives around the world precedes her. From groundbreaking guidance for life-changing strategies on discovering the most nourishing version of yourself to being called the visionary, behind the visionary when working for Oprah Winfrey, my guest today has been named one of Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business, listed on The Hollywood Reporter's Women in Entertainment, Power 100, and a Feminist Press Power Award winner. She was the former and final executive producer of The Oprah Winfrey Show, former co-president of OWN and Harpo Productions, co-host of the podcast, The Sherry and Nancy Show, and author of the Amazon Editor's Choice for Best Memoir. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming my iconic and brilliant friend, Sherry Salata.
0: Hi, everyone. Mm -hmm.
1: Sherry Salata, we're doing a podcast.
0: We are!
1: You know, in order for us to look forward, I wanted to go back a little bit into the early life of Sherry Salata.
0: Oh, jeepers. Oh, yeah, we're going.
1: We're going in deep. Okay. I wanted to know if, you know, growing up, were there any particular spaces that really helped shape the person that you have become? (laughs) You know, when I say spaces, I don't mean necessarily rooms or homes exclusively. Um, It could be communities or sentiments, a person, an object, but was there anywhere that you felt the most held as your past self?
0: I'm going to be really real with you that it took me a long time to find a space to create a space where I felt really held. And I would say probably the first time I started to feel that was maybe in college. I went to the University of Iowa. My sophomore year, I pledged 80 Pi. There was a house. Now, it's a different time now. You know, back then it was like you live in the dorms or you're in a sorority. And I loved these girls so much. I just loved them. They were so fun. And I just felt an instant, total acceptance and a freedom. That's the first time I started to feel it. And then it probably was a long time until I could really start to capture that again. And now, now it's just a way of life.
1: Was it the community of the sorority and where you were at that you felt held?
0: Yeah, it was that. It was like we were all living together. We were in each other's business. There's always somebody home, always someone to hang out with. I was an only child for eight years. And then I had a little brother who, you know, until we were adults, we had nothing in common. So it was, you know, it was kind of like a, it wasn't a jubilant, energetic household.
1: What was it like? Like, just describe it to us.
0: I mean, it was so Suburban, Jer. You know, my parents built it. It was a tri-level. And, you know, at the time, I'm sure it was really fabulous. And, you know, a neighborhood, riding your bikes, doing stuff like that. First of all, I don't think my mom had the concept of creating home, creating a space, creating a sanctuary. She got that much later on, years on. It, It wasn't great, I would say. I mean, we had this huge living room that we never sat in except on holidays. And then we all crammed into this tiny den and sat on top of each other to watch TV. So it was just weird. I look back and then I was like, I never felt cozy in that house. Mm
1: -mm." Well, I think that's really interesting when we get into your future and kind of the way you craft your homes now. Which is why I love that question because they're always tethered together in some way. We'll get into it later, but that's very much not how you live personally now. No. The complete opposite.
0: complete opposite. Yeah. Not every point of expansion in our lives is about, oh, I'm exposed to it. I learned it. Sometimes it's like, I just don't like where I am.
1: Yeah, 100%.
0: And that begins the quest to say, I know there's more. I know there's something better for me. I know there's something that would hold me better and I'm going to figure it out.
1: How old were you when you knew that you needed to go out and figure it out, that this place, this space wasn't going to hold you?
0: Six. <laughs> Six. I was, I, was, <laughs> I was young. I was just like, mm, this ain't it. This may sound grandiose and I can't help it, but I probably was a little bit more of an advanced being than my parents were hoping for. I was a, a bit of a spiritual handful. I was like, what is this? Why, what is this church? Why is there no happiness? Why are you sad all the time? Why are you never home? Like, it, it was definitely the the time I grew up in the 60s. And my dad, God love him, he'd come home and it was like, don't bother dad. He had a hard day at work. Now, I've been working for like four decades. And I'm like, you didn't have no hard day at work. I don't, you don't know from hard sitting at a desk and coming home at five o'clock. I know. So it just was a different time. You know, my mom was the family servant. I was like, oh, that looks terrible. And it just was a different time. And I was a misfit for that time. I rocked my little doll babies and I, I like to play kitchen and grocery store and stuff, but it was like, I don't want that to be my job. So yeah. So it was like, "Mm, I don't really like this.
1: I get that. So you leave home between the ages of, you know, 21 and 35, you know, what did your journey towards, you know, the career of your dreams look like? You know, how did you stumble into this path that you've been, that now you
0: own? (laughs) Yes, Right. Well, a stumble. It was more like a a trek across the barren Desert. Um, I had every job. Oh my gosh. It was such a, it was such a folly. I go to college. I'm a super duper party girl because I'd been a big student before that. And I was like, I'm free and I can drink. I didn't have a real plan. I didn't know what I was going to be. So listen, I was a secretary about four times. I was a toy store manager. I was a 7-Eleven store manager. I was a 7-Eleven store supervisor. So I had a ton of stores. Then I I moved back home. I was a secretary again. It was quite a journey. And the first big break I got was I got hired to work as a secretary at a big ad agency in Chicago. was taught to produce. And quickly I was like, oh, this is cool. I really like this. I liked it for about six years. And then I was like, well, it's hairspray. I'm not sure I want to devote my life to the shooting of highlight and hold hairspray. (laughs) And I saw that Oprah Winfrey show going on across the river in Chicago. And I thought, you know, that might be for me. That feels like me. And they rejected me. They're like, you are not what we're looking for, you know, because timing's everything. And it was a while later, there was a new person hired who was looking for somebody with advertising sensibilities, a producer who wasn't just a TV producer. And uh, so, yeah, 35 years old, entry level job at the Oprah Winfrey Show as a promo producer.
1: What did you like about producing? Like what drew you to it?
0: Well, it seemed to be a great combo of my gifts. I liked the creating part of it. I loved the creative part of it, organizing all the pieces of it. You know, I loved bossing everybody around, you know. (laughs) You got to keep everybody everybody on track. I loved that. It's like I can't sit back and watch that poorly done, you know. So all of those things came together, and it just felt like, I could look back on my life and see, oh, like, you know, when I'm at 7 Eleven leading the manager's big sing along talent show, and, you know, I'm making my cousins line up for rehearsal for our latest show or skit. It just was like, oh, yeah, this is me. Producing is me. I'm a producer.
1: That's so funny. You've probably been producing since you were six years old.
0: Oh, easily. As soon as I had a cousin younger than me, it was like, get in line. We've got rehearsal. <laughs> 10 minutes. Clear your schedule.
1: From The Oprah Winfrey Show to own to Harpo Studios, what was the most surprising or rewarding aspect of your time as co-president and executive producer?
0: Well, I was a lot of things before I was the executive producer. I didn't like fly up the ladder. I was, I was yeah. in the basement for a long time. But I was the executive producer for the last five years. And what an honor that was. Because what the you know, producers who had gone before had built was just, it was iconic, It was iconic. And by then we were just such a well-oiled machine in so many ways. And, you know, we had the best people and the best people in every department, you know, from accounting to HR to security, you know, to the show. And I had been there so long. It was a bit of a surprise when she made me executive producer. But, you know, what an honor, honor of a lifetime.
1: Like nonstop, right?
0: oh it was hard jer people think it's it's just a show it's just to oh my gosh it was so hard it was so hard and there were 10,000 things on any given day that would change and have to be addressed and to keep it up to the standard. I mean, every year we were topping ourselves. So by the end, it was like, oh my God, my head was going to blow off my body.
1: On tops of bridges and helicopters landing.
0: Yes. (laughs) Yes. Who can we dangle off the (laughs) London tower? Who can we? Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. It was crazy, but crazy, expansive. You know, I look back on that experience and to be truthful, I almost don't remember it. It's like being on a roller coaster and everything's going by so fast. I almost don't remember it, but I do know this, that that 20 years gave me the foundation for everything that has come after. It wasn't the final thing. It was almost the intro to everything that I would do after. And it gave me this spiritual foundation, this perspective, this exposure that, I will always say, changed the trajectory of my life for sure.
1: Oh, so many people feel the same way. It was one of the best and easiest places to learn, you know, and the safety of your living room. I was wondering, you know, as you're talking through, you know, that first sense of a space that tethered you in the community around college and sorority, was it similar when you were working There was it the same type of community and closeness because you're working with somebody that long of those people all day long. Like was that community strong and everybody behind the scenes? Yeah,
0: it was. It's like you're just in this thing that's coming at you all the time. So I think anybody who's worked in production on movies or anything, when it's go time and it's really fun and hilarious and hard and scary and really rewarding. It's all the things.
1: Was there an interview or something that you produced that you'll always look back on with pride or something that really changed or affected you?
0: Of course. I mean, there was almost two or three days couldn't go by without some point of pride like wow that was amazing wow that's really going to make a difference one of the things that's most memorable for me because i was the executive producer at the time is probably that the farewell the united center
1: oprah winfrey today you are surrounded by nothing but
0: love so let's get to- That was a (laughs) Magilla. That was a Magilla. You know, we're we're putting on a big, huge prude nanny. And meanwhile, back at the studio doing regular shows. I mean, that was, woo.
1: I met you, I feel like that last season, because you were living in Chicago, and I went to your house the first time in Chicago, and we had tequila at the bar in the kitchen. That was a great house. Describe it to everybody who's not seen it.
0: Yeah, it was a vintage condo on the lakefront and all the rooms faced the lake. But I had walked into this thing and it was kind of a mess. It was like hadn't been touched in 50 years. And I was like, oh, wow, this could be really great. And so my friend, I had like a contractor who had only redone kitchens And now he's doing, you know, a 3,800 square foot (laughs) vintage apartment. But I'm like, you can do it, Ken, you can do it. Come on. And so my friend and the contractor, off they went. And I loved that house. Before I moved to LA full-time, Jer, I thought about keeping it. Because by then, you know, my salary had increased. And I'm like, you could keep this house, Sherry. And this could be your Chicago place. But sometimes you got to move on. You can't hold on to everything in your life. It's time to let it go. It's time to let somebody else love it like you've loved it. So I did. I sold it and I let it go. Did you ever regret it? Nope. Ah, I love that. Because I know I'm right about that thing. My life wasn't gonna be in Chicago, you know? And when I go and see my dad or my cousins, I'm not downtown in the city. You know, everybody lives up in the suburbs. So my life wasn't gonna be there. So I continue to find that to be true, that we're not trained We don't get a lot of training in endings and coming to completion. So I find in the middle of life and a little past that, that I've got to train myself to come to completion on things.
1: Now let's move on to the present. It seems kind of impossible to have not gone through significant transformations as you've evolved in kind of the sherry of present day. How have the spaces of your past helped shape the spaces of your present?
0: Can I speak specifically about design?
1: Yeah, I'd love that.
0: You know, Jared, there are some things that have become my signature things. I mean, there's things that I really love and I appreciate all the new and the stuff and the patterns and the colors. I really do appreciate it. But there is kind of a signature feel that holds me really, really well. And that's when things are really wood, stone, white, and art. So the color comes from the art. Everything is super neutral, really warm wood. There's something about that palette that when I walk in, I just go, oh. I just am so clear. It's such a perfect energy match for me.
1: Every time I walk into your home, it's rooted in connection. The sofas are seated in a way where people can pull up and you can pull a chair up. Everything is around these little moments that you have throughout your day that you celebrate. Yes, you
0: are right. My life and my homes, my spaces, wherever they may be, are just I flood them with ritual and ceremony because I need to remind myself how sacred this life experience is.
1: When you were writing The Beautiful No, was there a space, like, what did your space look like when you were writing throughout that process?
0: The space where I wrote The Beautiful No was the space you and Nate designed for me in Los Feliz in Los Angeles. That beautiful 1926 house, Cecil B. DeMille's old estate, I think it was his carriage house. It was so beautiful. And there was a guest bedroom upstairs that I had a a nook by the window and I would put a desk there. And I wrote a lot of it there. I really, I wanted to be a writer who worked at a coffee shop. So I really dragged my butt there all the time. And there's too much going on. There's the guy next to me singing along to Whitney Houston. There's, you know, there's just too much. I was like, this is just not working for you. You're you're trying to be this picture of something. You need to be somewhere and you need to get to tippy-tapping the keys already. And I'd work in the backyard at the outdoor table sit in the backyard and, and I'd work on the book there.
1: What was the most nourishing element for you of becoming you know, an author of personal transformation? How does that feel?
0: I'll tell you how it feels now, because it's different. Now I'm like, that was such a great accomplishment, Sherry, I say to myself. It's not the easiest thing to do. And it was such a great accomplishment to have done it and to have done it as, as honestly as I could. And even now I use that memoir as a tool in some of the work I'm doing now with women. And even as I'm talking about that version of me who wrote that book and lived that life, it's not the same me anymore, you know? It's just such an interesting thing to have this marker, this memoir that came out in 2019 that I can see, oh gosh, you're like five versions later of that. And that's kind of informative for me, like how we change, how we evolve, how we expand, what we're becoming. And it's nice to have something like that to market.
1: Can you describe for everyone in your own words what the memoir essentially at its core is about?
0: I call it, for the younger kids, a cautionary tale. And for people in the middle of life, closer to my age, I call it a rallying cry. I get to sit back and really share, like, can you imagine someone like, here's everything I did wrong. Here you go. So you don't have to make those mistakes. I have made them for you. What a service. And then on the other hand, to be able to find myself at the time, 56, and saying, oh my gosh, I got a whole nother big bucket of life to live what am I going to do with it? You know, a lot of people would say my Oprah show years would be my glory days. But no, I see that very different now. The days you're living right now are your glory days, but they're built on those glory days of yesterday. So how do you keep calling and down the thunder for yourself? How do you keep expanding that sense of joy and wonder? How do you keep growing You don't do it by the R word, which is retiring. You don't do it by that. So now I see there's a new paradigm, Jer, for what is possible for all of us, especially women in the middle of life. And it's happening. It's completely shifting. And we get to live the new paradigm while we create it. And so that is, is, I wake up every day excited about that very thing.
1: Can I ask the most significant difference that you've realized of Sherry who wrote the book and Sherry now?
0: I think Sherry who wrote the book hadn't completely extricated herself from codependency, not setting boundaries, and she cared a lot about what other people thought still. And writing that memoir set off a healing journey for me because I could see stuff Jeepers, you know, whoa, yeah, some aha <laughs> you've, got some, you've got some patterns. Yeah, wow. And now I find the healing journey, the journey of spiritual expansion, so fun. I find sitting on the forefront of what this new paradigm that's possible. Like, I feel like a pioneer, Jer. It's like what's in front of me is a bit of nebulous mist, but I know what's behind that nebulous mist. Is amazing. So I have a lot of lot of trust in that.
1: I know that you have, you know, throughout your career, that you've adapted several skill sets for keeping yourself grounded. In present day, what ritualistic touchstones keep you centered and refreshed? Is something as simple as a meditation or a cup of tea or a TV show? You know, what is your moment for you?
0: Well, I have become a big practice girl. Practices, rituals, ceremonies, and talismans all those things because the more of the mystical I bring into my daily life, the more magical and mystical it feels. So like you get up, i light my candle. I mean, <laughs> I, I've been, I've slept over yeah. your house. So I know how you start. I do a morning ceremony. You do a morning ceremony. You set the house for the day. You get the lighting, right? You get your candles done. I have my grounding incense going and then I have a few touch points throughout the day, even if it's just stopping putting my hands on my heart, taking a few deep breaths, looking outside at the window, going outside. And then I usually do a, a nighttime ceremony, like I call it turn down service. So just like you were when you're at a fancy hotel, you come back from dinner, the bed is turned down. I do that for myself. Turn everything down, close the half the curtains, get everything ready, get my little scents going, and then I leave that I do it about 90 minutes before I'm going to bed.
1: That's so smart. I should do that.
0: I know. You'd like that one.
1: You know, as we move through kind of the present day and continue to look forward for what's to come in terms of space home, career, and I guess even mindset, what do you imagine is the most imperative for your future self?
0: Well, I'm finding a lot of joy focusing on the now moment, not getting ahead of myself, not ruminating about what's to come, really saying, but here I am right now. And how am I filling this moment with joy? How am I choosing happiness in this moment? And that's very different from, I was rewarded for thinking ahead, looking ahead, what's going to happen next month? What's going to happen next year? So retraining myself to be very content and satisfied with this breath, because here's what I say, Jer, how much time do we think we have? We're all walking around with hidden expiration dates on our forehead. So I don't want to talk about someday. This is my day. And I want to be in the now and this day and relishing this day and loving this day. And I'm having so many fantastic um, opportunities to practice that because as you know, which I've not said publicly, I'm moving again. So I'm moving to Georgia. I tell you, somebody sent me a website and I looked at the website and I said, this is the end of November. I'm moving there. I'm supposed to live there. I went for a visit in January, spent two days bought a property, and I'm building a house. I'm in in that process right now.
1: Describe for everybody what it was about where you're moving that you fell in love with.
0: It's founded and dedicated this area on community, wellness, and it's a little witchy in a way. And by that, I mean 70% of it is protected forest. It's hill country just outside of Atlanta. It's close to an airport. And... It has the opportunity for me to live this next version of my life, even more small town, even more villagey, more opportunities to kind of commune with nature. There's something about the promise of it that just is intersecting with where I'm at right now. This might be my last primary residence. And I kind of delight in that. I kind of like knowing, like, I'm setting the scene for the last 25 years of my life. And I'm setting it so magnificently so I have all these possibilities. There's something that feels the most like home ever.
1: Do you have any manifestations for this future space that you really want to make come to
0: fruition? Jer, I'm going to have a horse. And his name is Steve. And I don't know if I'll ever ride Steve but he needs a home and they have a stables, a beautiful stables. I'm going to have, yes, I'm going to have a horse son. Yeah. I feel like great love is waiting for me there. Great love.
1: Where did the dream of Steve come from? The horse?
0: A really good friend of mine just moved from Georgia. You know, they've had this horse in the family for 17 years. It's time for them to have another horse, but they only want it to go to a good home. And I'm like, I'll take Steve because I have a beautiful stables where I'm moving to read books together and go for walks together. And it's not going to be, we're not going to be like jumping or anything like that. (laughs) We're just going to, we're going to be friends.
1: I love that. Steve is going to be a very, very lucky guy.
0: Yes, he is.
1: All right, so we've reached a part of our show where we get a little bit cozier and a little bit more candid. Let's imagine a nice fire crackling. I know how much you love a fire. I wanna ask you a couple quick fire questions. On Ideas of Order, we have a lot to say about the concept of growth and comfort, both in home and in life. So for this little fireside tete-a-tete, it's just you, me, and a couple quick fire questions to dig a little deeper. Okay, ready? Okay. What has home taught you?
0: My worthiness.
1: What is the most surprising space you've ever loved?
0: I love my car. You know, I used to be of the mindset where every four years, new car, new car. It feels a little vintage. It's a 2011 Range Rover. It's British Racing Green, you know, with a camel interior. And I just get in it and it's just, it feels a little luxe, but it feels a little like worn, You know, it isn't brand spanking new. It's it's nice.
1: When do you feel the most at home?
0: You know, just being cozy, puppies, friends I really like, maybe a glass of wine, maybe a little board of some sort, some laughs, like belly laughs, and good lighting.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The most important ingredient. All right, Sherry, I cannot thank you enough. I always love speaking with you, but this is such a treat and to have you here and to share everything and your story. I'm really grateful and obviously selfishly just thrilled to see you.
0: Same. I love you, my friend.
1: I love you more. As I continue to learn the balance of acknowledging what is simultaneously with what could be, I find myself grounded by the practice of taking it one day at a time. Life is truly about being present and mindful. Here's to living every day with intentionality. In our work, in our relationships, in our homes, celebrate what life has to offer each day with the knowing that this practice will lead to where you're meant to be. Join me on our next episode where I chat with writer, producer, and actor of the acclaimed series Schitt's Creek and 12 Monkeys, Emily Hampshire on inhabiting the character space and feeling most at home in a suitcase. For more Ideas of Order, please visit ideasoforder.com or californiaclosets.com. Guys, I'm Jeremiah Brent, and thank you again for being here today. We'll see you again soon.
0: I was a single, I was the only kid for like, I was going to say a single mom. Not a single mom. No, I was the only child. We're dropping a
1: lot of bombs today. <laughs> wow,
0: that's a bombshell even to me.
1: Surprise. <laughs> Another Everything Podcast production. Visit everythingpodcast.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast.